All right, this morning I'm going to read for us, this morning for our sermon text, two passages, one from Genesis chapter 1 and then Psalm 8. Uh, If you would like to follow along in your Bibles, you're completely welcome to do so. Uh, Both passages are printed in your bulletin if you find it more uh, convenient to look at those. Uh, Last week, we began our summer series. Our summer series is Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body. Flesh and Bones, a Biblical Theology of the Body, and it follows a pattern of what we've done over the course of the past three years. And basically last week, in case you weren't here, or just as a reminder, we looked at the perhaps most basic truth that we could look at about ourselves, and that is to see in Scripture that we were in fact made by God, that we were created by God, we were formed by God, we were woven by God, we were handcrafted by God, we were built by God. All of those verbs are verbs that are used in uh, some in Genesis and some in other places of Scripture to describe that reality. And we also saw that as we are created by God, we are not just created physically or we are not just created spiritually, but we are in fact a body-soul being, an embodied soul or however you want to say that. We can tend to think of those things separately and as I said last week, there's some value in doing that as long as we understand that ultimately our creation is as embodied beings created by God. We saw that this was no uh, accident that uh, took place, but instead, uh, God carefully, he intricately, he intimately, purposefully, fearfully, and wonderfully made us. And one of the conclusions that we then take from that is that we are not our own. The Lord is our maker. We are created by him, and we belong to him. And this is all part of Uh, Actually, the section that I'll read for us in just a moment. We, being the capstone of this, are all part of that creation which God declares to be very good. And in response to that, we say, I praise you. Right? Right in the middle of Psalm 139, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, let me read these texts for us this morning, and then we will uh, continue on. Hear this portion of the God-breathed and thus living word of the living God from Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now from Psalm 
8, a reflection back on what God has created, and a reflection on simply looking up and considering what God has created. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Great God in heaven, your name is majestic. Your name is sweet to us, your people. We pray that today the sweetness of your name would grow in our mouths and that we, your people, would praise you because we're fearfully and wonderfully made by you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, the question that is going to guide us is uh, for this week and for next week as well is found right here in the middle of Psalm 8. And the question, if you've looked at the title in, uh, in your bulletins, the question is, what is man? Or if we want to read the entirety of that particular section, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That is a question that is asked not only here, it is asked in other places of scripture as well. We think of it here uh, perhaps most predominantly because this passage is quoted a couple of times uh, in the New Testament and everybody loves Psalm 8, so we think of it being here. Psalm 144 asks the question as well, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Uh, And if we were to go back to the book of Job, an example from Job 7, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? If we were uh, to go to Harvard University and to Emerson Hall, uh, which is where the Department of Philosophy is housed at Harvard, and if we were to look at what's engraved across the very front of Emerson Hall, it is this question. What is man that you are mindful of him? A great question, and, uh, and when we think about this question, we can approach the answer biblically from two directions. I'm sure it would frustrate the philosophy department at Harvard to actually presume that the Bible might have an answer to this very great question, but nevertheless, there is an answer to this very great question. I, I don't want to pretend it's not a terrific, wonderful, enormous mystery, But I also want to say, listen, Scripture gives us an answer to the question of what is man, even when it's asked in these particular ways. We can go from two directions scripturally to consider the question. We can look at creation itself, uh, which is kind of the perspective that Psalm 8 takes. Psalm 8 kind of looks back at creation, at who we are and how we were made, and reflects on the question of who is man. The other direction that we can take in answer to the question is that we can look at Jesus himself. He, Jesus, is what a man should be. 
And so if you want to ask the question, what is man? Look at Jesus, and the answer is, that's a man. That is who, that is what man is. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Now, please understand, uh, and, and, and please recognize that I'm going to be using man following the biblical example here, but when I'm saying man in these contexts, I'm primarily, but not exclusively, primarily talking about humanity, okay, humankind in, uh, in talking about this. Who are we? So for the next two weeks, we're going to be guided by this question, what is man? But here's what I'm going to do to try to structure our time in a way that I think and I hope will be helpful and valuable to us as we consider this question. I'm going to divide the answer to this question into two parts. One of them we'll look at this week, and then we'll look at the second part uh, next week, of course. The, the, the two parts, though closely connected, are distinct, I think, from one another. First, we were going to be looking at man, and, and when we talk about man, we're talking about a created, embodied being. The first thing that we're going to be looking at is man from an intrinsic perspective. Who are we from an intrinsic perspective? And then next week, we're going to look at that same question, what is man, from an instrumental perspective. Okay, so intrinsic and instrumental, if you want to just simplify the way we're dividing this. This week, we're looking at who we are. Next week, we're looking at what we do. Okay, who we are and what we do, or to put it in some other language, and there's a variety of ways uh, that you can put this. This week, we're looking at the structural elements, the ontological elements, the being elements of who we are as mankind. And next week, we're going to be looking at the functional aspects of this, the economic aspects of this, the vocational aspect to which God has called us. So that's the division that we're going to be making, and then we'll follow on there from today. So who are we? What is man? What's the essence of our constitution? And in asking the question, I want to be guided in our answer by the scriptures that are before us today. And we, when we begin to answer this question and we turn to Genesis chapter 1 and we look at the passage that is before us, what is immediately presented to us in the text, and I hope this will be the first thing, if somebody said to you, what is man, that you would respond to with them, we are created as image bearers of God, right? That's, that's the first thing that it says. It's unmistakable. It's completely clear. It's said several times in the text that we are image bearers of God. We, in our body-soul constitution, are, we are the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Now, I'm saying that, if I want to for a moment, you can put image of the invisible God in quotation marks here because I'm saying it for a very specific reason. If you recall last week when we started this series, we read from Colossians chapter 1. And in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, it begins this great poem about who Jesus Christ is with respect to all things, with respect to all creation. And the opening line of that hymn or theological statement by Paul is this. He is the image of the invisible God. He, of course, there being Jesus Christ in that. Jesus the Christ. He, as the incarnate Son of God, 
is the image of the invisible God. He's that image. Jesus is the image of what we were created to be. That's what we were created to be. We were created to be the image of the invisible God. We fell from the estate in which we were created. And now, in Jesus, we have been redeemed so that we can be the, the image of God again. We are striving to be the image of God. And the image of God is what we will be as we see it manifested in Christ himself. And so he, Jesus, is the head of a new image-bearing humanity. Look at the front of your bulletin here for just a moment. On the front of your bulletin, the last of the quotes that's on the front of your bulletins is from 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Paul writes this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, okay, the, the image of the man of dust is Adam. We've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We'll bear the image of Jesus Christ, the man from heaven as well. Now let me take us back to Genesis chapter 1 for a moment here and talk about this. The, the title image bearer and the fact of image bearing immediately I think points to the uniqueness of mankind. We are different from other parts of the creation. Now we share much in common with the rest of creation. We were created, we were made of similar parts. We, uh, we, we reproduce according to our kind. Uh, much of the stuff that is the stuff of us is dust of the earth. We, we, so, so we share what, what some theologians have called the solidarity of the sixth day. We have a lot in common with this creation and with other creatures that God has made as well. But we are clearly created uniquely and particularly. We are different than the other things that are created, and that's what is captured in the phrase being an image bearer. Now, if we uh, had the shorter catechism open in front of us, we would read this answer in the shorter catechism. And the answer to a question is this. God created us male and female after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and in holiness with dominion over the creatures. That describes how God created man. Male and female after his image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Now, the part with dominion over the creatures is something we'll come to next week. That's, that's what we are to do. Right now, just to step back for a moment, what does it mean when it says that we're created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? And I just want to go over this quickly because it's not where I'm going to uh, park us today, but just so we're aware of that idea of image bearing. Well, the knowledge part would be that we are a rational being. We have a mind. We have understanding. We can understand the things that are revealed to us by God. So we're after his image in both that we have knowledge and also that we can think. We're also after his image in righteousness, which is to say that we have a will. We can will that which is right. And of course, Adam and Eve in particular had a freedom of that will to will that which was right or that which was wrong. 
The righteousness then refers to this ability to will, to desire to do that which is good and to have the ability to do that which is good as well. And then the final word that is used there, and these are words that are just picked up, up frankly, out of the Colossians passage that we looked at earlier and out of an Ephesians passage uh, that we're not going to look at today. But the final one, holiness, is to talk about our heart, if you will, our affections. When we are created in holiness, it's to say that we are a feeling being as well. We're not just a thinking being. We're not just a doing or a willing being. We are also a feeling being created by God, and therefore we can love what we ought to love. Okay, that's what holiness talks about. We can love what we ought to love. And as we are an image bearer with these things, we have derivatively from God a personhood. A personhood. These are characteristics also of God. We are after the image of God. We are persons with the ability to use those faculties. But now, moving on from there, sometimes those qualities, having knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, are sometimes seen by theologians as applying particularly to the soul, though I think there's a lot of interplay with the body as well, if we were to think about it for a while. But we aren't just formed as a spiritual being. We aren't just formed as a soul. We're formed physically and materially as image bearers, right? As image bearers. In fact, one can almost say that if you're going to bear an image, it requires that there be some kind of an image, whether that's a 2D image or whether that's a 3D uh, image. You have to have something physically. So physically, body and soul, we are created as image bearers. And this continues, just to be clear, and, and this is just a side point, but to make the point, uh, this continues after the fall as well. After the fall, we read, for example, in Genesis chapter 5, these are on the front of your bulletin, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, which is to say after the image of God. It's just picking up of the language in uh, Genesis chapter 1. And then verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. There's an image lineage that is going through even after the fall. Adam in the image of God and the other images are images of images of the man that is made in God's image. And in fact, all of us are, as is confirmed in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, uh, which basically gives us a recreation after the flood. And it says this again on the front of your bulletin. Whoever sheds the blood of man by, his, uh, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And for now, what we want to recognize from that passage is two things. We want to recognize the fact that it continues to be the case that not only after the fall, but after the flood, mankind is made in the image of God. And secondly, because that is the case, we have incredible value. We have incredible value that is touched to us, that is attached to us. And so if you take the life of another, by man shall your life be taken. That's how valuable uh, we are as image bearers before God. Now, admittedly, right, the fall into sin nearly obliterates this image. It nearly makes it impossible to see this image of God, but it does not eradicate all of it. The constituent elements of our essence and call still stand from God 
even though all of these things that we just talked about, for example, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, are now working in rebellion against God, trying to assert their own independence instead of their dependence upon him, and thus the need for a man who would bear the perfect image of God, Jesus himself, a need for a man to redeem, to restore the fallen image of man and to recover it on our behalf. Uh, in the passage that we read earlier, Colossians uh, 3, verse 10, and I don't know what I did with my handed in a new bulletin, but in any case, in chapter 3, verse 10 of Colossians, what was written there and what we read there is that we are being renewed after the image in knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the new man has been implanted in us, and that new man is being renewed more and more into the image, the image of God that is born by Jesus himself. So here's the, here's the upshot of this. This is the most basic thing we can say. The most basic thing we can say is that if you belong to the race of man, you are, by definition, ontologically, in the very essence of your being, you are an image bearer. You are an image bearer, regardless of your age. From the moment you are conceived in the womb where God is fearfully and wonderfully making you to a person who is lying on their deathbed and unable anymore in consciousness to say anything, to think any thoughts, you are an image bearer of God himself, regardless of your age, sex, your health, your abilities or your disabilities. Who are you intrinsically and in essence and in being? You are an image bearer. All right, now what I want to do is having made that statement that, and, and looked at it carefully from Scripture that we are image bearers, I now want to try and unpack just a little bit what are the implications of that? What kind of truths flow from the idea of being or from the reality of being an image bearer? And I'm going to give you five that I think flow from this that we can draw from the texts that are before us today. As an embodied image bearer, we possess dignity. That's the first one. Dignity belongs to us as image bearers of God. Psalm 8 includes this incredible statement. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Man is crowned by God. God, the one with ultimate royal status, the one who is the king of kings, takes a crown and puts it on the head of mankind and crowns us with glory and honor. There's a royal status that is here. We've been granted kingship over the work of God's hands. We are a living color 3D representation of God Almighty, and we are blessed by God. We are part of the great declaration of that which is very good. And so, as an embodied being created by God, we have dignity. And the human body is to be treated with dignity, having been created by God and imaged in, or, and made in his image. Now, here's the second point. 
that follows after this as well and right on its seals. The second point is that as embodied image bearers, we also have a degree of finitude about us. Finitude. Dignity is the first point. Finitude is the second. Our bodies define us. Our bodies literally set limits upon us. We are body bound, if you will, to be at a particular place, to be a particular person, to be with particular people. We're defined by these bodies. We're not omnipresent. We're not kind of sort of present in other places. We are defined and body bound by these bodies. Now our world proclaims the message in every form it possibly can to say, you can be whoever you want to be. And you can put explicatives in the midst of that as well and hear the world say it. That you can be whatever you want to be, whoever you want to be, and there are no holds barred on what you want to be. And that is in fact not the case. The question, the question of what is man or who is man is a question that in its very essence recognizes the finitude of mankind, the limits, the smallness of mankind. So when David asked this question in Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him, what has he done? He's looked out at the vastness of the heavens. He's looked out at the, the creation. And I, I don't even know if David had the imagination to be able to even comprehend, not that we can really comprehend, but maybe at least scientifically, we at least have a sense of, it, of, of its size, of its breadth, that maybe David couldn't have comprehended as we look at pictures uh, and, and listen to physicists try and describe for us the immensity, the enormity of the universe. David looks at all of that, all of the marvelous vastness of the heavens and says, what is man that you care about us? It's not a question that he's just asking abstractly. It's a wonder. It's a wonder that God cares for us at all, given the fact that we are so small. That compared to all of these other things, we're so finite. We're so little. We have these bodies that are so incredibly frail. Incredibly frail. What is man that you are mindful of him? And of course, this finitude, we can look at it from the perspective of creation. To have a body is to be finite. But we can also consider it after the fall as well, and that's what happens in these other passages that I read for. So I didn't read all of Psalm 144, but it says this. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. See, the psalmist is reflecting on this. Not only do I experience finitude, because with a body I can only be at one place at one particular time. I'm not only bound by place, I'm bound by time as well. I've only got a short time. I've only got a breath. And Job's idea about it is almost exactly the same. I didn't read the verse that precedes the question, but Job says this, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? See, it's not a lovey-dovey moment. 
it's not, a, it's not a real sweet moment in which Job is just, you know, asking the question, what's man, it's so wonderful that you love me, it's so wonderful that you care about me. Job's asking the question because he would rather God leave him alone. Stop picking on me. Stop paying so much attention to me. What am I? I'm nothing. I'm a speck in the great cosmic universe that is out there. We are made from dust and to dust we shall return. It is sobering. It is sobering to think of our finitude, but it's also absolutely critical and a good thing because our finitude is a check on the dignity that has been given to us so that the dignity that we talked about first that has been assigned to us by God doesn't become that which would kill us, namely pride. Finitude limits us to who we are and what we are, in fact, able to do. It magnifies our weakness and highlights the glory of the Creator. And that's where Psalm 8 starts, right? That's why the thing about infants and babes is in Psalm 8, so that we realize that God can get praise from the littlest things and He can defeat His enemies with the very littlest things if He so chooses. Third element of being an embodied image bearer is that when you are embodied, it is a statement right from the get-go, right from the moment that we are made, that we are dependent. Okay? So dignity, finitude, and dependency are characteristic of us. An image bearer is not self-sufficient, not self-determinative, but instead dependent and derivative, dependent upon the one in whose image we were made. And so, at creation, in the passage that I read for us, after we are created, God says, behold, I have given you every plant yielding fruit and every tree that's yielding the seed within it. I have given them to you. We are absolutely dependent upon God providing for us. We are absolutely dependent upon the one who has created the world and us to be the one who sustains the world and sustains us through the world. And when we come together and pray as a church, what we are expressing is this truth, that being made as an embodied image bearer means that I have to pray because I'm utterly dependent upon God. And the prime example of that is the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. That's where the, the full dependency is on full display in that statement. That's what God promised. This, will, this earth will provide for you. That's what we pray for. We acknowledge that it comes from God. Give us this day our daily bread. Fourth, as embodied image bearers, we intrinsically have presence. Presence is the third thing. We we take up space. You take up space right now. You take up the space wherein you are sitting right now. We inhabit. We dwell in the places that God has established. The original gift that was given to us of creation is described by God as a place of habitation, a place wherein you can live, a place where you can dwell. And the final state is to have that physical, embodied, dwelling place be with the Lord. David put it this way, Psalm 27, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that 
I may dwell in the house of the Lord. We have place, we inhabit place, we desire to have place wherein the Lord himself dwells with us. The glory of the new heavens and the new earth, if we were to turn to Revelation chapter 21, the glory of the new heavens and the new earth is that the dwelling place of God is with men. And that dwelling place is in the embodied Lord Jesus Christ living with, being present with the embodied resurrected saints of Jesus Christ. In his incarnation, Jesus dwelt with us. Jesus was present with us. John reflects on this at the beginning of 1 John. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, which is it was present, it was enfleshed. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal, invisible Son of God became enfleshed and took on presence with us. And John says, that's what happened. What I'm here to tell you is that this isn't just a great idea. What I'm here to tell you is that the one who is the word of life spoke with his words life into being is the one who became enfleshed and was present with us and we touched him. And we ate with him. And we heard the words that he said and we saw him with our eyes. And that Lord is now present through the indwelling of the Spirit and through the physical sacrament that we will have in just a few moments. And he's preparing a place where we will dwell in presence with him. Fifth and final element then is this. Element of being an embodied image bearer. The fifth is communion. Communion or connection. When you are embodied, what is immediately evident as an image bearer is that you're connected, is that you are in communion with others, that we were created in and for communion. An isolated, disconnected, individual image bearer is an impossibility, or at least it is incomplete. Uh, most obviously, uh, the image bearer idea is derivative, right? There has to be an original. And if you're going to be an image bearer, there has to be somebody else. And the original one of whom you are an image, but we can say much more. God did not say this. God did not say, let me make man in my image after my likeness. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The, the or, or original one has communion within himself and with those whom he has created as well before the foundations of the world itself, the earth itself. The Lord had communion with himself and in that communion he creates another for communion as well. Secondly, the, the one who is called into communion with the one who is the original, the image bearer, is not made in a vacuum. He didn't just create Adam and leave him out hanging in space in nothingness. Instead, he's placed in an already formed creation, a creation 
which itself bears witness to the one who created it. A creation which bears witness to the vastness, to the beauty, to the grandeur, to the majesty, to the power, to the life-givingness of the one who created it. And so the embodied image bearer, Adam, and then Eve with him, is placed into, connected with, absolutely dependent to be in communion with the creation in which God has placed him. This is your place. And the creation is incomplete without that person, that image bearer there, and that image bearer is not sustainable without that creation that is around him. There is a communion that exists then with not only the God who made, but also with the creation that God created as well. But of course, the expression par excellence of this communion, of this communal connected aspect, is that as connected as Adam may be with God in three persons, with creation in all of its vast array, he needs something else, he needs someone else. What he needs is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh to make him sing. To make him sing, he needs flesh and bones. He needs other flesh and bones besides his own flesh and bones. Image bearing is inseparable from being male and female, man and woman. The distinction is not merely economic or uh, functional or practical. It's on the level of personhood. A world where God had, let's, let's just imagine a world for a moment where God wanted to populate and fill the earth with God glorifiers and instead of creating Eve, his decision was to make a billion atoms or a billion atoms plus one or whatever their names would be. A billion men that God immediately creates on the earth. I suppose that that would be an exercise better in image bearing than a singular man. But, but, but to image the love the interdependency, the communion, the care, the honor, the sameness and the distinctiveness of the members of the Trinity, God said to Adam, watch and learn. Watch and learn. Sleep and I will show you something, someone extraordinary. Something that is the same as you, flesh and bones, and something that is different than you. We need men and women to the very core of their being to help us see who we are as embodied image bearers. So I give all this to you today. I know it's a mouthful. I know it's a little bit abstract this morning. I give it all to you today as food for thought and wonder and praise. We are embodied image bearers, image bearers who have dignity, finitude, dependency, presence, and communion. Now, I'll close with a Lewis quote. If you need something practical, if you go, that's not practical enough and you can't wait until next week when we talk about the functional side of things, I'll close, close with this quote from Lewis from The Weight of Glory, reflecting on how this reality impacts our relationship with our neighbors and the way we value other people. Here's Lewis. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, 
or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. It is a serious thing to be an image bearer of the invisible and the living God. Lord, we thank you for these things that you have revealed in your word. We pray that you would renew our minds after that image more and more, that we would appreciate how you have made us, that we wouldn't take these things for granted, but that they would be for us items of praise and of thanks and of wonder and of awe, and that guide us in our thinking about who we are and what we're to do in this world. Help us and enable us in that, we ask in your name. Amen.